Section 19 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. The Prevention of Crime, Part 2. When a school for criminal boys was carefully examined, it was found that of the 200 boys, 127 were deficient in their general makeup, either in the direction of feeble-mindedness or in the direction of hysteric emotion or in the direction of epileptic disturbance. And fuller light is thrown on these figures as soon as others are added. In 85 cases, the father or the mother or both were drunkards. In 24 cases, the parents were insane. In 26 cases, epileptics. And in 26 further cases, suffering from other nervous diseases. Not the criminal tendency was born with the children, but the insufficient capacity and resistance of the central nervous system and this was their inheritance from abnormal and degenerate parents. If we wish to express it in terms of experimental psychology, we may consult the careful tests which have been made with female criminals in southern penitentiaries on the one side and female students of a large university on the other. Certainly, point for point, the criminals show a different result. For instance, in memory tests, the average student remembered a series of seven letters or a series of eight numerals, while under the same experimental conditions, the average criminal remembered only five letters or six numerals. Or the test for the attention to tactual impressions showed that the students discriminated two compass points as two on the right forearm at a distance of 16 millimeters while the criminals did not discriminate them with less than 24 millimeters. If students pulled at a hook as fast as they could, their energy would be decreased in half a minute by 1.6 pounds, while that of the criminals decreased by 2.4 pounds. Or if a word was given as starting point for any associations which might arise in consciousness, the average number of associations in one minute was for the students 10, for the criminals 5. In short, in every respect, the average of the criminals shows a poorer mental equipment than the average of the picked student minds. But here again, no one feature points to a special demand for crime. Criminals are recruited especially from the mentally inferior. That is the only true core of the doctrine of the born criminal. But the mental inferiority, intellectual or emotional or volitional, forces no one to steal and burglarize. He cannot and will never equal the clever, well-balanced, energetic fellow, but society may find a modest place, humble but safe, even for the most stupid and most indifferent and most unenergetic. No one is predestined by his brain to the penitentiary. It may be replied, of course, that there are plenty of cases in which crime is committed from an irresistible impulse or from a total lack of inhibition 
or from other defects which exclude free self-determination. But in such cases, we have clearly no longer any right to speak of crime. It is insanity. The man who starts incendiary fires because he has hallucinations in which he hears God's voice ordering him to burn the town is not a criminal. Moreover, the pathological impulses of the diseased mind are again not confined to the criminal sphere. Again, crime is only the chance effect. The disturbance is general. The irresistible impulse may be just as well directed against the man's own personality and may lead to self-mutilation or to suicide. And that holds true also for the milder degrees. Only today I studied the case of a lad of eleven who was brought to me because he was found stealing from time to time. He was a dear little boy, surrounded with comfort and the best and most loving influences. He fights and fights against his impulse and speaks of it frankly. Sometimes it comes like an attack. He longs for some money, perhaps, to buy firecrackers with, and he simply cannot resist till it is done, he told me with tears, and then he hardly knows why he did it. But it was evident at the first glance that the boy was not normally built and that the attacks which led to such pseudo-crimes were pathological quite similar to epileptic or hysteric fits. To prevent such explosions of the diseased brain is not prevention of crime, but on the one side, treatment of disease, on the other side, protection of society against the outbreaks of dangerous patients. In real crime, we have to presuppose that the checking of the impulse by the counter-idea would have been possible if the available energy had been brought into play. Crime is thus not a disease, and there is no need to excuse the existence of our jails by considering them as asylums. Every action is, of course, the necessary result of foregoing causes, but such effect of the causes remains a free and therefore a responsible action, as long as the causes work on a mechanism which is able to secure an unhampered interplay of influences. The insane or the hypnotized mind has no freedom and therefore cannot commit crime. But the merely stupid or reckless or brutal or indifferent minds are still free, while it is clear that the probability of a disastrous result is for them alarmingly high. If we thus exclude the pathological mind from further discussion, we can say that no one is born a criminal. What, then, has society to do that no one shall become a criminal. The latest of all sciences, eugenics, might look backwards and demand that society take care that such mentally weak and inferior persons are not born at all. Vital statistics show indeed, on some of their darkest pages, that the overwhelming majority of these degenerate personalities have drunkards and epileptics as parents. But our immediate lack is a different one. We presuppose that the minds of the millions, in all their variations of strong and weak, of intelligence and emotionality and power, are born and sent into the streets of the cities. What can the psychologist advise that their way may not lead them from the street to the cell of the prison? But now the problem has become simplified. 
We know the mechanisms which keep men straight. We can foresee, therefore, what influences must be detrimental. If the counter-idea is to balance and to overcome the first desire, we can foresee that the chances for crime must grow if the impulses are strengthened, or if the counter-ideas are weakened or eliminated, or if the inhibitory apparatus is damaged, or if in any other way the sound balance is tampered with. Here is indeed the place for the experiment of the psychologist. He can isolate the special factors and study their influence under the exact conditions of a laboratory. We may take illustrations at random. We said that crime involves an impulse to action, which is normally to be checked. The checking will be the more difficult, the stronger the impulse. The psychologist therefore asks, what influences have the power to reinforce the impulse? Has, for instance, imitation such an influence? Mere speculation cannot answer such a question, and even so-called practical experience may lead to very mistaken conclusions. But the laboratory experiment can tell the story in distinct figures. I ask my subjects, for instance, to make rhythmical finger movements, by which a weight is lifted, and the apparatus in which the arm rests records exactly the amount of every contraction. After a while, the energy seems exhausted. My idea has no longer the power to lift the weight more than a few millimeters. The recorded curve sinks nearly to zero. I try with encouraging words or with harsh command. The motor energies of these word stimuli are not ineffective. The curve shows a slight upward movement, but again it sinks rapidly. And then I make the same rhythmical movements myself, before the eyes of my subject. He sees it, and at once the curve ascends with unexpected strength. The movements have now simply to imitate the watched ones. And this consciousness of imitation has reinforced the energy of the impulse beyond any point which his own will could have reached. It is as if the imitation of the suggestive sight suddenly brings to work all the stored-up powers. The psychologist can vary the experiment in a hundred forms, always the same result, that the impressive demonstration of an action gives to the impulse of the imitating mind the maximum of force. It must then be the one condition under which it is most difficult to inhibit the impulse. How many helpful suggestions for the good, for education and training and self-development can be drawn from such facts? But much more, how many warnings against reckless fostering of criminality? In millions of copies, the vulgar newspaper pictures of crime reach the homes of the suggestible masses, and every impulse towards the forbidden is dangerously reinforced. Every brutality spreads outward and accentuates the lawless impulses in the surrounding. The abolition of prize fights and whipping posts is not enough. To point in another direction, everything must be fatal for weak honesty, which reduces the power of restraint. The psychological experiment can here analyze the influences, for instance, of our usual stimulants, coffee and tea, tobacco and alcohol, drugs, and nervina. Laboratory experiment indicates 
perhaps only slight variations in the rapidity of movements in the memory tests or in the discriminations of stimuli, but every one of those changes must be endlessly magnified if it is projected into the dimensions of a world city in which the millions indulge in artificial excitement and stimulation. Take the well-studied case of alcohol. We ask, let us say, a number of normal men to go through a series of experiments in their ordinary state. We may begin with a reaction time experiment. That means we study how long it takes to make the quickest possible hand movement in response to a flashlight or to a click. We measure the time between the light or sound stimulus and the reaction in thousandths of a second. Then we vary it by a test where various movements are to be made in response to different lights so that a choice and discrimination is involved. We then turn, perhaps, to memory experiments with the learning of letters or figures or words. Next may be an experiment in intellectual activity. We measure the time of simple arithmetical operations. Then we study the mental associations. For instance, we give a list of 200 words, and our subject has to speak for each one, the first word which flashes on his mind. We may then study the character of these closely bound ideas and may group them statistically. Then we measure, with a dynamometer, the strength of the greatest possible effort for action. Next, in order perhaps, we study the judgment of our subject in his estimation of space and time distances, then the accuracy with which he imitates a given rhythm, then the rapidity with which he counts the letters of a page, then the sharpness of attention with which he discriminates a set of short impressions, and so on through other tests for other mental functions. For every test we get his average figures, and then we begin the examination of the effect of the stimulants. How are all these exactly measurable functions changed, 20 minutes or an hour or two hours, after taking a dose of one ounce or two ounces or three ounces of pure alcohol, whiskey, beer, or champagne? Only such a variety of tests gives the possibility of disengaging the effect and of understanding where the real disturbance sets in. Certain functions seem certainly improved. For instance, we soon find that the reaction time test gives smaller figures under alcohol, at least in a first stage. The subject who needs normally, say, 150 thousandths of a second to press a telegraph key after hearing a click may need only 125 thousandths of a second, half an hour after his alcohol dose. But is that really an improvement? The same records show that while the time of the reaction decreases, there appear at the same time wrong reactions, which did not occur in his normal state. Again and again the key is pressed before the signal is really heard. The impulse explodes when any chance touches it off, instead of remaining under the control of consciousness, which waits for the click. In the same way, it seems in the first short period, from the dynamometric tests, that the alcohol brings an improvement of motor energy. But half an hour later, the tables are turned. The muscular effectiveness is decreased. In the field of associations, 
the time of bringing a new idea to consciousness becomes longer. The process is retarded, but more important, the associative process becomes more mechanical. If we call those associations external, in which an idea awakes another with which it is connected in space or time, and internal, those which involve a thorough relation, a connection by meaning and purpose, we can say that the external associations strongly increase with alcohol, and the internal ones become eliminated. Still greater are the changes in mechanical memorizing, which is at first greatly facilitated, and in calculation, which suffers from the first. The strongest improvement is shown in reading. The greatest difficulty is the intellectual connection. And if the various threads are connected by careful study, we get a unified result. All motor reactions have become easier. All acts of a perception worse. The whole ideational interplay has suffered. The inhibitions are reduced. The merely mechanical, superficial connections control the mind. And the intellectual processes are slow. Is it necessary to demonstrate that every one of these changes favors crime? The counter-ideas awake too slowly. Hasty action results from the first impulse before it can be checked. The inhibition of the forbidden deed becomes ineffective. The desire for rash, vehement movements becomes overwhelming. In such a way, experimental psychology can carry the vague impressions of the bystander into a field of exact studies, where mere prejudices are not allowed to interfere, but where real objections can be substantiated. Moreover, the general statements can be particularized by subtler examinations still. How does alcohol work in different climates, at different seasons, at different hours of the day, in work and in fatigue, in different states of health, with food and without, for different ages, different sexes, different races? And how is the effect of pure alcohol related to that of the various beverages? to whiskey and beer and wine. Only if we can differentiate the mental influences through such experimental tests can we secure a rational protection against one of the most persistent sources of social evils. End of section 19